Thanks, Marlon. We're continuing our atonement series this morning, and Marlon read for us one of the most uh, significant passages that points to the atonement in uh, the Old Testament prophets in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, one of the, uh, what's called the servant songs about the suffering servant in Isaiah. But so far as we've been working through this atonement series, we have approached it from different angles, through different lenses. If you remember our first week, several weeks ago, we talked about the atonement as, as a form of sacrifice and how the Old Testament sacrificial system played into the understanding of what happened to Christ on the cross. We looked at it through the lens of exile, of how the Israelites who were enslaved and captive in, in Babylon and in Egypt were liberated. And, and what Christ did on the cross was a way of liberating uh, those who had been far off. Uh, ransom, last week that we looked at, were those who were in captive and Christ paid the price to set them free. These are just three of the several ways that the New Testament authors talk about what it is that happened on the cross. And throughout the centuries, there have been ways that Christians have tried to make sense of it and work through it, how this multifaceted, incredible act of Jesus being crucified makes the relationship mended between God and humanity. That's what we mean when we say atonement. Two Groups, two parties that were once estranged being made at one together. And we've talked about different some analogies of, of how we can talk about this act on the cross in, in different ways. We, we've talked about the analogy of a diamond, right? Where we look at a diamond and a, a good diamond has, I think, 58 facets to it. Different cuts in the diamond, and as you look at it, each of these facets brings light into the diamond that shows off the beauty of what it is. If a diamond is only cut like a cube, it's not showing the brilliance and the beauty of what the stone is. It needs all those different angles and ways of, of viewing it to appreciate its beauty. We talked about these different ways of talking about the atonement, like golf clubs in a golf bag. Where if you're going and playing a round of golf and all you've got is a driver in your, in your uh, bag, man, you're going to do great off the tee, but you're going to struggle on the green. Like, it's, it's going to be a hard time for you. And we need these different ways of talking about the atonement because there are different ways where it is addressing God redeeming and, and bringing humanity back to himself. We talk about it like a color spectrum, that, that to only view the cross from one way is like only seeing one kind of way of color. And, and we need to kind of fill out the color spectrum. And, and what I'm finding and what's been difficult in my own study is kind of like a, a color spectrum wheel. A lot of these kind of bleed into one another. And there's a difficulty in, you know, it's hard for me right now to separate kind of the sacrifice and exile and ransom and substitution, like they, are, they do all bleed together. But there are specific things about each of them that we want to highlight. This week, as we continue on in this series, we're going to be looking at probably what is one of the most common ways of understanding what happened on the cross, which is talking about Christ as our substitute. And what it often boils down to when we talk about this is by saying this, 
that Jesus bore the punishment for our sin by dying in our place. For many of you, I'm sure that just rings true. That sounds familiar. That sounds like, oh, that's the way I'm used to talking about what happened on the cross. That Christ bore the punishment for our sin by dying in our place. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This has been the hardest sermon for me to write about this. Because this view of the cross, it's so popularized. It is kind of the natural way many people talk about it. But unfortunately, we don't always talk about it in the the clearest ways. And sometimes we assume the Bible says some things about this view that are more kind of, that's just how a preacher talked about it some one time versus what's actually in the text and the writings of the New Testament. I've struggled because there are scholars who say, substitutionary atonement is not a a viable way to talk about what happened. And there are others who say, no, it definitely is. And and I've been sucked way down the rabbit hole this week and had to resurface resurface a little bit in order to have a, a sermon and not a theology lecture this morning. So please bear with me as, as I work through this. Uh, this has been a wrestle for me. In my theology, uh, one of my theology classes in seminary, I wrote a paper starting out of, of trying to say, oh, substitutionary atonement isn't the best way to talk about what happened on the cross. We probably shouldn't use it. And then by the end of my paper, I'm like, no, we can't get around it. Like, it's there. It's, it's there in Scripture. And so we need to wrestle with it and, uh, and work through it. So, this picture of substitutionary atonement goes by a longer name, typically, where we needed to pull out the duct tape, where it's often called penal substitutionary atonement, which has the connotation of punishment, the penal side of it, right? That, that not only did Christ take our place, but Christ was punished in our place. And this phrase was coined by a guy in the 1500s named John Calvin. And John Calvin was kind of one of the big theologians of the Protestant Reformation, once the Protestants broke off from the Catholics in the 1500s. And following him, most of the Protestant tradition of the church has kind of just adopted this way of viewing the cross as the primary view. And this is what Calvin said about it. He said a lot of things, but here's kind of a condensed quote. He said, Christ took the punishment upon himself and bore uh, what by the just judgment of God was impending over sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which rendered them hateful to God, by this expiation satisfied and duly propitiated God the Father, and by this intercession appeased his anger. Some big theological words in there, but you can go to the bold to kind of get the gist of it. That Jesus, in Calvin's view, was puni- took the punishment on himself and appeased God's anger. This is a controversial view for many people. Where, where maybe more liberal traditions will say, I don't like this picture of an angry God who needs to be appeased. And, and maybe there's, this is a, a, a way of talking about God as a violent God, a way that emphasizes his anger in an unhelpful way. And the problem is, 
some of this criticism is actually warranted. Because some of the ways we've talked about this is more like a caricature of what actually happened, where we emphasize certain things to make a point rather than what is actually there being talked about in the text. You know what I mean by a caricature, right? I have an example here up on the screen. <laughs> Steve Carell as, as Michael Scott in The Office. Like, a, a caricature is, a, is an image of the original subject, but there are certain aspects of it that are emphasized, overemphasized, to kind of make a point, right? Listen, Steve Carell's got a big nose, but it's not that big, right? But they emphasize it to, to kind of show that, right? They, he's got a toothy smile, he's a goofy guy, but they, they just overemphasize that in the caricature. Here's my fear, is that a lot of the ways that we've talked about Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross is a lot more like a caricature of what happened than what actually happened. And some of the things that we emphasize in the caricature are actually unhelpful and actually take us down a, a road that, that create a, a caricature, a picture of God that is, that is inaccurate. That, that mischaracterize him. So here, here are some of the, the, the caricatures that maybe you've heard this before. This, this is kind of a way that you've understood this. That God in his kind of anger, pent-up anger towards sin, kind of like unloads all the bullets of his gun on Jesus on the cross so that he's got no bullets left for you and I. That all of his wrath and anger is just poured out so there's no more wrath and anger left for you and me. Or, or maybe you wouldn't have said it this way, but this is kind of how you received it, is like, God's mad, and so he's kind of coming with the fist to punish sin. Luckily, Jesus kind of like jumps in the place, and he takes the punch on the nose, instead of you and I getting the punch on the nose. Sometimes our way of framing the gospel isn't so much that God so loved the world, but so much more like God is so angry that he killed Jesus. And that our picture of the good news actually doesn't sound like good news. It sounds like God's actually just really upset and someone's going to have to die. Someone's going to have to get the end of the stick for it. I want us this morning, to look at what it means for Jesus to be our substitute on the cross. More from what the writings of the New Testament say and the emphases of Jesus' disciples and early followers who wrote the New Testament, rather than the ways that, that preachers have taken it and run with it throughout the years. Because listen, this picture of the cross is easy to preach. It's easy to like emotionally manipulate people, of like, Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Like you are a spider on a spider web being like swung over the fires of hell. Like God is so mad at you and he killed Jesus. I want us to dial it back and actually look at what the New Testament emphasizes and talks about when it comes to the death of Christ in our place. So here's a few things that we need to look at is the motivation of the cross is love, not anger. The motivation is love, not anger. When our picture of the cross is God was so angry he killed Jesus, that overemphasizes wrath and anger in a way that isn't there 
in the New Testament as they reflect on what happened on the cross. Rather, we have the the passages that we know very well of of John 3.16 and 17, which says, God so, what, loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Another important thing to remember in terms of this motivation being love is being reminded that we worship a God who is Trinity. A God who is Father and Son and Spirit together. And so this isn't like, as some have mischaracterized, this act of divine child abuse where the Father is beating an innocent son. But it is the Father and Son and Spirit together before the foundations of the world deciding together that we will take care of the sin of humanity. And so the Son says, I will go. And the Father, like, they work together in this act. It's not the Father needs to take it out on someone, so I'm going to take it out on the Son. It is the love of the Trinity manifest in the Father, Son, and Spirit working together in this act that looks horrific on the cross, but motivated out of their love. This is not that God has some pent-up wrath that needs to be quenched or satisfied. I I love the, the song, In Christ Alone, But when we get to the line, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I can see what they're trying to get at, but I think it's misplaced emphasis. That it's less about God's wrath being satisfied and more so His great love being displayed. And I would also argue from how Paul talks about the cross in Romans that it's not so much his wrath being satisfied as God's righteousness being put on display. In Romans 3, it says this, that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That what's going on here isn't that, that, that God has this like anger that needs to be quenched, but rather God is showing us his character in that he has been patient towards the sin of humanity. He's been patient towards the generations of, of sin since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden. And he has not fully condemned sin in the way that it should be. But he's also showing his character here in that God doesn't just ignore sin. That God has found a solution towards the the reality of sin. And that solution is that Christ has chosen to become uh, the sacrifice, shedding his blood for our sin. God's righteousness is on display on the cross. The second thing that we need to emphasize in our understanding of the cross this way is that it is our sin that is condemned in Jesus' crucifixion. Sometimes we talk so much about Jesus receiving punishment 
we forget that what it is that is punished on the cross is the sin that is placed on Christ. Let's retract for a minute. When we talk about the cross, and I know for me, sometimes it gets so bogged down in like theology textbooks and theory and trying to like piece together doctrines that we forget about the event and time and place that the crucifixion happened in. The crucifixion was a means of capital punishment by the Romans in the first century. It was their way of killing insurrectionists. It was their way of putting to death bandits and thieves and criminals. It was a way of punishing those who had committed a crime. It was a form of punishment. And when we see Jesus, this man who is not only innocent, but he's he's completely sinless. It should stand out in stark contrast to us like it would of the disciples that an innocent man is receiving capital punishment. That he is being punished for something he didn't do. Now we can see that from a human perspective. But then how do we see it kind of from a, a divine perspective? How does God see this? Why was Jesus being punished on the cross when he did no wrong? Well, Paul in Romans 8, he talks about it like this. He said, for, the law was powerless to, uh, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. The picture that we're getting here in this passage is that God in in sending the Son, and Jesus coming and being flesh and blood and living among us, He didn't sin. But He experienced this, this life of humanity that we all live. And He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh in a way where our sinfulness somehow on the cross was placed upon Him. And so on the cross, it is our sin being condemned in Christ's body. Let me, let me clarify for you with, with the writings of Peter in 1 Peter 2, where he quotes uh, from the passage that Marlon had read for us before. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter quotes, He himself bore our sins. This is a quote from Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and, and live for righteousness. He quotes again, by his wounds we have been healed. By quoting here, he's importing everything that a Jewish reader would have known about Isaiah 53 and the, this idea of, of a man who is innocent suffering on behalf of his people to make them righteous. Now Peter is taking that and pointing this directly on Christ and saying everything that you read about, everything that Marlon read in Isaiah 53, this reality gets played out in time and space, not just words on a page, in the body of Jesus of Nazareth as he was crucified by Romans in the first century AD. That on the cross, somehow our sins were born in his body 
We're, we're, when I say born, I don't mean given birth. Born, I mean to bear. He bore them on the cross in His body. And so that sin was condemned as Christ was punished by the Romans on the cross. Jesus died that death. The language throughout the writings of the New Testament is there. He bore our sins in His body. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. God made Him to be sin for us. And by His wounds, we are healed. Somehow, in some way, the sin that was attached to us that we have committed and the guilt that comes with it is placed on Christ. And He dies condemning that sin. Jesus died under the weight and condemnation of our sin, taking our sin to the grave with Him. And in so doing, Jesus removes that sin from us. So that we who follow Jesus, we don't die under the weight and condemnation of our sin because Jesus did. I'm trying to speak with nuance here that is making this hard to communicate. It's easy to do the caricatures, but I'm trying to thread a needle here. The emphasis as well that we read in the writings of the New Testament about this is in a righteous man dying for the unrighteous. We see this over and over in the passages about Jesus' death. We'll go back to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3 where he says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Paul in Romans 5, he writes, You see, just at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Sorry, I was expecting you to read, read along with that and that was, wasn't up on the screen. I've got it here in my notes. So. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous died for the unrighteous. The Son of God died for the ungodly. And lastly, we come to maybe one of the most famous passages uh, in this way of talking about the cross. That God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That somehow on the cross, and this, is, this goes back to what we talked about last week, a little bit of this is like the whole vending machine thing. Where like, we don't see all the mechanisms behind the scenes. Like we put the, well, it's not a quarter anymore. You, put, you tap your credit card and the, the can of Pepsi comes out. We don't see how everything entirely works behind the scenes. But what we're told somehow is our sin is on Christ on the cross and it's put to death in Christ. And somehow Christ's righteousness, which He bears as the, the shining and pure one, the only human who has 
ever lived righteously is given to us. Some incredible exchange happened that is hard to explain, and all we have is the language of the New Testament. So what? So what does this mean for us? If God's motivation in the cross is displaying His love and His righteousness, not just relieving some pent-up anger. If, If Jesus bore our sin as it was condemned in His crucifixion. If the righteous one died for the unrighteous, what does that mean for us? Well, first of all, it means that in following Christ, you are seen by God as righteous. We have sinned. We have lived with the stain of our sin in our lives. And we've seen its effect in our relationships and on other people. We know that there's more than just like us hurting ourselves when we sin. There are ripple effects. We see the devastation that it makes. And even in the midst of that, God looks at us because Christ bore our sin on the cross and He says, we're we're good. We're in right relationship. That I see you as clear and pure and my own in the way that he saw Christ. It means we've gone from tainted to being clean. It means we go from being guilty to being forgiven. And, and if you want to get into some of the like weeds a little bit, The phrase that we read in in 2 Corinthians 5 about in Him we become the righteousness of God, that phrase is uh, used by by New Testament scholars. They, They understand that phrase to be not just, oh, we become like holy like God is, or we we become good in His sight. But even more than that, the righteousness of God, that phrase has this connotation of of God's God's faithfulness to His promise. It is the connotation of God being willing to to take the step to bring people back to Him. The righteousness of God is God reaching out to bring people close. And so this phrase of in Him we become the righteousness of God is a way of Paul saying that because of Christ bearing our sin on the cross, we now become those who are an extension of God reaching out to bring people to Himself. Let me me back that up a little bit. If you turn in your Bibles right now to 2 Corinthians 5, where that kind of famous one-liner is, it's all tucked within a paragraph of Paul talking about what it means for him and his buddies to be apostles that we've been reconciled to God, and so now we are ministers of reconciliation. Because God has, has, through Christ, not counted people's sins against them, so now we go out. We go out and we are people who bring people in to understand this good news that, that now we're reconciled to God. That we are now the righteousness of God. We are an extension of God's action in the world of restoring people to Himself. 
which means for you and I, as those who are seen as righteous in God's sight, who have received the righteousness of God, as we read in that passage, we're called to be an extension of God's work of redeeming people in the world. We're not just meant to be like a a social club that meets on Sunday mornings to sing songs and to do a, a book study. We're called to be part of God's work of restoring people back to himself. You're invited into the family business. The second thing that I think is really important for us to wrap our heads around in light of this is there is no one who is too unworthy. We read in in Romans that Christ died for the ungodly. And maybe if you've been hanging around church for long enough, you, like me, can get this sense of like, I'm doing pretty good. I wouldn't categorize myself as the ungodly. We can get really churchy real quick. And I think it's important for us to remember when we read that Christ died for the ungodly, when Christ died for their sins, by their, we mean me. By their sins, by their, oh, I hear so-and-so wasn't honest about their taxes this year. Their sins is also my sins. It's also my anger and my lust and my selfishness. And so as we look around the room, as we look at our neighbors in our community, and we have this temptation to say, Oh, they're, the, they're the unworthy ones. We need to remember that we're the unworthy ones too. And that it took Christ, whose death was paid the price for our sin on the cross to make us righteous in the sight of God. That it is Christ's work, not ours. We didn't make ourselves righteous. Christ did. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't actually feel worthy. I feel like the unworthy one. And the message that you need to hear this morning is that God does love you. The message that you need to hear this morning is that God knows your sin and your shame and the thing from your past that you feel so gross about. And you need to know that by placing your faith in Christ, that sin was born in Christ's body on the cross and was condemned in his crucifixion. And so it's paid. And you're in the clear, and you're righteous, and you're worthy in the eyes of God. It's paid for, it's taken care of. God offers you forgiveness. He calls you righteous and He invites you to live out this righteousness of God, extension of the family with Him. He took our sin. He bore it on Himself. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. Our sin for His salvation. So this morning as we turn our eyes towards this table where we celebrate this kind of symbolic meal of of bread and juice, which 
which point us back to Jesus' last supper with his disciples. Right? Where, where he took bread in his gathering with them and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. The body that bore our sin. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. We remember that. We remember that the price was paid. That he bore it on the cross and we are now seen as righteous. We are going to reenact this meal this morning that Jesus had with his disciples. But also we're going to symbolically reenact this great exchange this morning that took place. Our sin placed on Christ to receive His righteousness. And, and, and what we're going to do, it might push you out of your comfort zone a little bit, and I think that might be good for, for us. But I'm going to invite you this morning, the, the band is going to play a song. And myself and Sarah are going to be up here with the elements for you. And what I'm going to invite you to do is for you to take one of these white cards that you see stuck in the chair in front of you, and I'm going to ask you to be brave here. I'm going to ask you to write the sin that Christ has borne on his body and condemned in his crucifixion. Write it on the card. He died for my anger and my lust and my selfishness. And I'm going to invite you to come forward, and I'm going to invite you to throw it in the trash to come forward and get rid of it. Because it's been taken off you. It's been taken off you and it's been placed on Christ. And I want you to, to take off the sin from yourself and I want you to receive what Christ has given you. And kind of symbolically lay down your sin and take up what Christ has. His body and His blood for you. Listen, you don't need to write your name on the card. I don't want to know. I'm not going to follow up with phone calls. None of this stuff. All right? <laughs> but as, as, as we sing this next song, I'm going to invite you to come forward and receive the elements if you would like to participate in communion. And as you do that, you can place your sin in the trash. Give over to Christ what He's borne on the cross and receive what He has given for you.